Hello, everybody, and welcome to your Ruby Live event. My name is Eric Weinkoop. I'm the Director of Culinary Instruction, and I'm also one of your instructors in the courses. Uh, today, it's my office hours, and I appreciate you joining me. Uh, this is your chance to ask questions related to food and cooking, and it's my opportunity to do my best to answer those questions. And, uh, you know, as I look at the queue, uh, I see a number of questions already uh, entered, already populated. And so it's going to be a, a nice full uh, hour here, I think. Now, uh, before I jump into the questions themselves, uh, I want to talk for a minute or so uh, on a, a fairly common topic that comes up among students uh, uh, that enroll in our courses, and that has to do with substitute ingredients. And, um, you know, we have students every day uh, that make ingredient substitutions in their assignments uh, for various reasons. And, um, you know, we certainly want to accommodate uh, those uh, requirements uh, or those desires. And, you know, one overarching uh, sort of concern or, or question to keep in mind as we make changes to a recipe is uh, that the, the finished product, that the outcome is still in alignment with the learning outcomes of the assignment, okay? And uh, I'll give you an example uh, that I see every once in a while, and this is the uh, clear soup uh, recipe and assignment. Uh, every once in a while, there's a student that wants to make a, a change, and uh, they will do that on their own, and the result sometimes is that they will create a soup that looks wonderful and sounds just flavorful, um, but it ends up being a different type of soup. It ends up, uh, for example, becoming a pureed style of soup, uh, which takes the finished product away from the learning outcomes for that lesson and for that assignment. And then in those uh, situations, uh, unfortunately, we need to ask the student to redo the assignment. Um, so a, a couple of things, uh, you know, one, uh, we always encourage you to reach out to us ahead of time before doing the assignment uh, so that we can troubleshoot. Uh, if you look through the Q&A uh, questions for the given assignment, you might find the answer to your question. And that's probably a fair place to start. Um, however, there are times when the solution, uh, for one reason or another, is really unique uh, to that student's situation. And it is beneficial in those cases if the student reaches out to us. And the best place uh, is at support at ruby.com. And that'll give uh, our team a chance to interact directly with you and to problem solve your specific scenario and to come up with a solution that's going to work for all of us. Okay. Um, you know, uh, also keep in mind that more generally speaking, right, when we make substitutions to uh, uh, recipe ingredients, that things will change uh, in the course of preparing the recipe. And uh, the end result will be just a little bit different than what the author of the original recipe intended. So please be open uh, to those sorts of changes. 
to the finished product. And those changes can uh, vary quite a bit, right, from uh, color or aroma to uh, taste. Uh, taste meaning the sweet, salty, and sour, and bitter, and, and astringent uh, qualities, the umami, right, of a, of a finished product, or uh, the um, flavor. And flavor is associated more closely with aroma. And uh, while there are, oh, five or six or seven or so fundamental tastes that we work with in cooking, uh, there are thousands of flavors associated with aromas uh, that we work with. And so, again, as we change ingredients, those things will shift as well. Okay. And then another area where we also see changes is in the cooking method or other ancillary techniques that might be applied to that particular recipe. So, you know, for example, if you uh, switch from, um, let's say, simmering in a main ingredient to sauteing or roasting or grilling, for example, then what we're doing is shifting, in this case, from a moist heat cooking method to a dry heat cooking method. And you're bound to get a drastic color change. When caramelization is introduced, darker uh, colors will result. Uh, but with that will also come more intense uh, flavor and aroma. And so you know, depending on what sort of a finished product you are envisioning, uh, you can, you know, choose the, the appropriate path uh, to move forward with, okay? Um, but again, you know, just keep in mind that you have lots of control uh, over the assignments that you submit. Um, but, you know, we do have just a few uh, requirements with each assignment that need to be adhered to. So, uh, you know, uh, we understand that substitutions are necessary and we support those and we want to find a solution that will work for you. So, you know, please uh, feel free to reach out to us ahead of time and um, we'll take it from there. All right. I hope that's helpful for you all right, as you work through your courses. So next, uh, let's go ahead and jump into today's program, uh, which is the open office hours and the questions that you've posted. So let me start off with the first one from Frederica, uh, which reads, some foods taste better the next day. Why is that? What ingredients would make that happen? So th this is a, an interesting question. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, I'll start out by saying that it's not one that I have a detailed response to. We get into organic chemistry, uh, which is uh, outside of our focus on, uh, on food and cooking. Um, but, you know, very simply, uh, um, most all uh, foods are going to shift uh, in their flavor and aroma profile with the passage of time. And um, uh, so, um, again, it's, it's potentially all the ingredients that are involved, but, uh, you know, certainly spices, these uh, uh, more intensely um, aromatic ingredients tend to be the ones that mellow out and shift and settle down uh, more noticeably than others. And this is why, for example, um, a curry, uh, you know, taste very different the next day. But this can also be said of soups and stews, okay? Uh, in fact, I'll give you a tip 
uh, you know, something that I used to do, something that I really don't see um, so much in the, the professional world, uh, at least not very often. And that is if you're making a soup or a stew uh, for your menu, consider making it a day ahead of time because uh, it will taste better uh, by the time you serve it. All right. It takes a little bit of planning. You have to cool it and store it and then reheat it. But uh, the effort, I think, is well worth it. Okay, so a little tip of the day. Thank you for that question. And the next one concerns tamarind. So I love tamarind uh, in paste form, says uh, Dana. Uh, but the only place I know to use it is in Pad Thai. What other dishes or places uh, can uh, tamarind paste or tamarind generally be used. So from a culinary perspective, tamarind is a souring agent. And so as we think about the basic tastes uh, that we have in our dishes, you know, sour is one of them, tartness, and there are a number of different ingredients that will lend a, uh, a sour taste. And it could be tamarind, right? It could be lemon juice or lime juice. It could be a, a vinegar. There are many different types of vinegar. Uh, it could be kokum uh, or other ingredients used in other global regional cuisines. Now, uh, you know, in terms of any of these ingredients, you also want to think about the accompanying flavor. So you've got the basic taste, in this case, sour. And then uh, tamarind also has a notable uh, sort of a dark fruitiness to it. And so you want to think about the accompanying flavor as you choose your souring agent. In the case of tamarind, uh, you know, I use tamarind in uh, stews and also soups, uh, you know, as a souring agent fundamentally, where I also want that accompanying richness uh, from the fruitiness that comes with tamarind. And uh, so if you think of, about uh, that broad approach to cooking and how you might use a souring agent, I think that you can find many places where you might use tamarind paste, uh, usually paste. And, um, you know, very similarly, if you were using the, um, the, the bulk tamarind, uh, which you can buy in, in many grocery stores. In fact, I was just at a halal store yesterday where I picked up a pack of uh, tamarind in bulk, which contains uh, the seeds uh, as well as these tough bits and pieces from the um, the pod. And so in that case, you know, you want to soak that for a little bit in some warm water or hot water and then work it with your fingers and uh, you know break down that pulp uh, until it's nice and smooth. And then you can run it through a, a fairly coarse strainer to, to pull out the big chunky tough pieces. And then you can let all that beautiful um, fiber and other flavorful bits and pieces through. And then you've got uh, usually tamarind water at that point. Now, if you prefer to use a thicker uh, paste, then this is where you might reach for uh, a ready-made product in a, in a jar. Uh, you can buy these uh, at Mexican grocery stores uh, as well as Indian or other South Asian grocery stores. Okay. Thank you. All right. Next question. Uh, is there a substitute for cashews 
that could be used to make vegan cream or cheese. With the amount of processing that cashews need to be extracted from the fruit, I am not sure they were ever intended for human consumption. Uh, so regarding uh, plant-based cream and cheese and a substitute for cashews, you know, the, the first uh, thing that I would suggest is to experiment with other nuts. Uh, it, it, you know, cashews are very common for a couple of reasons. One, because they're fairly neutral uh, in flavor, and also they're very smooth in their texture. So that, uh, especially with a high-speed blender or a food processor, you know, they can be processed to a nice, smooth consistency uh, so that it's um, very enjoyable on the palate. Um, but if you, first of all, just shift toward another nut uh, of, of your choice, keeping in mind that uh, a, a fairly neutral nut in flavor, you know, would be, let's say, a macadamia nut, um, Brazil nuts are uh, fairly neutral in flavor, you know, unlike, say, walnut or pecan, which are very noticeable uh, in their flavor profile. Uh, although I will also add that there's certainly nothing wrong with using those, you know, in a cream or a cheese if that accompanying flavor fits your desired outcome. Okay, so I encourage you to experiment widely. Um, otherwise with the same approach, uh, and that is to soak the nuts uh, in order to give yourself the best chance of creating a nice smooth consistency in the finished product, okay? And then as you make uh, a cheese, for example, you know, you can move forward with all of the usual flavoring ingredients. Uh, nutritional yeast is very common. Uh, sometimes it's garlic. Uh, it could be... Um, uh, you know, uh, as far as acidulants go or souring agents, you've got lemon juice and then also vinegars. Um, and all those things can come together in a very uh, complex and very nice way with, you know, whatever base nut that you're using. Okay, so give that a try, please. Thank you. All right, and the next question uh, or two, it looks like, from Marilyn and uh, says, uh, can I get a quick opinion on, on two things? When to use salt with cooking, uh, in this case, boiling potatoes, and when to use salt at the end? Also, uh, when to put a lid on the pot, in this case, potatoes again, and when to boil without the lid. All right, uh, many recipes don't mention the lid. So, okay, so lids. Um, a, a general reason for using a lid uh, is to get your liquid up to temperature faster, right? So you don't lose so much heat to the atmosphere. So if you put a lid on it, then a large pot of water for simmering potatoes or boiling pasta, for example, is going to come up to temp a little bit faster uh, than an unlidded pot. Now, also keep in mind that when we use a lid, that the water will tend to boil more vigorously. So if we have um, a food item, and, and really uh, most food items uh, should be handled delicately, whether they first appear 
delicate or not. Uh, all, all food really deserves to be handled gently and, and uh, delicately and otherwise with respect. Um, but certainly when it comes to potatoes, I can I consider those fairly delicate items once they go into the water. And just to uh, run us all through the basic steps of, of cooking potatoes, you know, in this case, waxy potatoes or russet potatoes or the mealy variety of potato, we will start those in cold water and, you know, cut those into, uh, you know, usually fairly large pieces, but the, the size overall should be fairly uniform so that the heat penetration across the pieces is as uniform as we can get it. And that's going to ensure the most even cooking and the best overall results for that batch of potatoes. Okay. So we start out in cold water and we bring the temperature up relatively slowly. And you can put a lid on it or not. I mean, with the lid on, it's going to be a little bit faster. Without the lid, it'll take a little bit longer. So it's going to be up to your schedule at that point. But uh, bring the, the temperature up relatively slowly. Uh, so that the heat has, uh, has time to slowly penetrate toward the center of those pieces of potato. Now, what happens is, uh, what, what happens when, I should say, we use water that is uh, hot to begin with or comes up to temperature too quickly, uh, is that the outside of the potato pieces will cook much faster than the interior of the potato pieces. And the outside will become overcooked and start to slough off or, or break off uh, before the interior is adequately cooked. So this is why we want to do our best to um, sort of equalize the cooking um, really by just slowing down the heat penetration. Okay. And hence we start in cold water. Now, again, whether you use um, a lid on the pot is really up to you, but um, experiment and uh, keep in mind that you want to maintain a relatively gentle environment. So simmering uh, is our goal with potatoes and not boiling. Boiling is uh, a rough environment uh, that will um, sort of bump the pieces against each other and it'll cause the outsides to, to break and crumble and crack. And uh, we... Uh, not not only do we uh, end up with pieces that are visually less attractive than they could be, but also uh, our yield on the product decreases. And yield means the usable product from that given food item. Okay, and uh, we consider that to be very important uh, in the kitchen, whether in a professional kitchen where money matters, or when cooking at home, uh, and certainly our household. Uh, budget or food budget matters. Okay. Now, uh, in terms of salt, you know, generally salt can be added uh, multiple times throughout the cooking process. And that's the, the general approach to cooking. And it gives uh, uh, salt, number one, the chance to start to uh, be drawn into the food item very early during the cooking phase. Uh, and that's going to give you a, a better seasoned product and, you know, a more enjoyable product on the palate. Uh, but it also gives us a chance to adjust seasoning uh, as the cooking process progresses. And certainly at the end of the process, uh, you know, we would check uh, to do a final adjustment as needed. Now, you know, with, with potatoes, we're not necessarily worried about, um, 
a, a final adjustment if we will use the potatoes in another you know preparation or otherwise finish them in some way such as with a dressing okay um, however if your intent is to simmer the potatoes strain them and then basically serve them as is uh, then the uh, tasting and addition of salt along the way becomes more desirable okay so there's not a single correct answer but rather multiple or at least two or three uh, correct answers you know depending on uh, your desired outcome okay so please experiment and find the path forward that works uh, for your particular situation, your particular preparation, uh, for example, okay? And, uh, you know, this is, uh, I think, a, a good point to mention that, you know, in the world of cooking, there is usually, in, in really in the savory kitchen, in other words, outside of uh, baking, uh, there's, you know, usually multiple ways uh, that you can move forward, and it requires experimentation and uh, finding what fits your palate, your family's preferences, your audience, your equipment, you know, all these sort of variables that come into play. Um, you know, what you choose needs to fit those variables, okay? And so, uh, you know, while in our lessons we will give one or sometimes a couple of ways forward, you know, keep in mind that you will encounter additional, you know, variations on a, on a cooking method or some way to handle a food product. Be open, please, uh, to those additional ways and, you know, find the, the path of least resistance moving forward, you know, in your own cooking setting. All right. Let's take a look and uh, just make sure I've, I've touched upon all of Marilyn's sub-questions here. Um, so salting um, and, and the lid. So I think, uh, I think that does it. Uh, again, Marilyn, just keep in mind that, you know, when it comes to potatoes, you know, I will salt in the beginning and um, usually let it go because I'm going to finish it in some other way. But, uh, you know, you can feel free to salt multiple times. And, um, you know, with the, the lid, give it a try, uh, understanding uh, what we're trying to achieve here, right? Slow, even heat penetration through the cooking process in order to maintain the integrity of the potato. Thank you. All right, next up from Jay uh, on garlic prep. Um, I crush uh, cloves to remove the skin and release the oil. Okay, I noticed that many chefs thinly slice uh, the garlic cloves. Uh, any purpose for using either technique for um, for given you know application? Um, so you know a couple of things come to mind, Jay. You know, one is that if you're if you're crushing a product, you're going to create more surface area. And so there's an opportunity for more flavor to be released from the garlic uh, versus slicing. And it certainly would depend on just how, how thinly and how much we slice the, the garlic. But um, um, one way or another, there, there could be a variation in the amount of surface area and therefore the amount of flavor that's released or the, the rate of release. And so you have some control. And you know, similarly, you, you know, we have control as cooks on um, how 
vigorously we crush the garlic clove or just, you know, as I mentioned, how thinly and how much we slice a garlic clove. You know, for example, slicing a garlic clove once to split it in half versus slicing it 15 times, right, will result in very uh, a different amount of surface area. And in a similar manner, the crushing, you know, can uh, be controlled as well. So, you know, I, I compare those. I think about those two. Um, and then, you know, also, um, I mean, this is this is a, a bigger story here, but um, and and maybe not so much of an issue when we're comparing crushing to to hand slicing of garlic. Okay, because hand slicing is done at a pretty gentle, slow speed. But let me give you an example uh, of hand processing, whether it's with a knife or with a mortar and pestle or whether it's with, you know, your bare hands uh, versus a faster mechanical processing done with a food processor. OK, um, I had an experience at uh, what used to be a favorite restaurant of mine. Uh, it was a Lebanese restaurant uh, here in Portland, Oregon where uh, they had tabbouleh, of course, on the menu. And uh, I used to go when the, the parents of this family um, were still in charge of the kitchen. And they hand cut all of their parsley that went into the tabbouleh. And you know, with that, you get uh, a nice, delicate, uh, even, and, and sometimes even sweet flavor that comes out from the, the parsley. And you know, there was a point in time when the business was handed off to the next generation. And um, the, the kids that grew up here uh, very quickly introduced mechanization, food processors to break down the parsley. And the next time I went in, I immediately noticed the bitterness uh, in the tabbouleh. And when I looked at the tabbouleh on the plate, I also saw the, the weeping of the water around the edges, uh, which are a, a couple of, of pretty typical signs of a, uh, 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 you know, in this case, an herb, right, that was processed with a fast cutting machine versus hand cutting. And um, uh, I immediately knew what the results were. And I actually brought it up to the new owner at that time, and, and the new owner was not happy to, to hear my feedback, uh, and I stopped going to that restaurant. But anyway, that's that's my own thing. But um, the the point here is that yes, you know, the, the handling of products can make a difference, but in particular, hand processing uh, processes processing versus mechanized processing. Okay. And that's where I see the most stark uh, differences um, coming uh, out into the food. Um, you know, whereas um, slicing versus crushing, uh, the difference will be much smaller. But again, just pay attention to the surface area that is created All right, in the case of garlic. Thank you. All right. Next up, uh, question from Heather. Uh, how can the basic pasta recipe be made gluten-free? Yeah, so this is a question that we get from time to time. And, uh, you know, the easiest solution here is to uh, reach for a gluten-free flour blend from the store. And, you know, these days there are many different types of uh, gluten-free blends available for specific applications. 
And they, uh, for example, Bob's Red Mill uh, is a company that produces uh, a number of different gluten-free blends for uh, for bread or pizza crust or pasta or, or something else. And so that's what I would recommend that you do. Um, I mean, otherwise, if you want to try to design your own gluten-free blend, it will take a lot of trial and error. And, and I certainly wouldn't dissuade you from doing that, but do keep in mind that it'll take some time uh, and a lot of experimentation in order to find a texture that's going to be pleasing to you. Um, whereas that testing has already been done, right, by Bob uh, and his team. And uh, so please give that a try. Thank you. All right, next question from Robert. Uh, what is your opinion on tabletop knife sharpeners? What type of sharpener uh, that you, uh, the type of sharpener that you slide the knife through uh, coarse and fine slots. Um, yes, you know, uh, a tabletop sharpener, I think, is fine. Uh, there are you know, different ways, right, to, to sharpen a knife. Uh, a, a whetstone or a whetstone set, for example, is one way. Uh, an electric uh, or an automated in some fashion um, you know, knife sharpener uh, is another way forward. And then also, uh, and this might be what you're talking about, Robert. Uh, this, I guess this could be an electric, uh, you know, countertop model, as well as a manual countertop model that has these V notches. I guess they can be manual or electric. I think those work quite well. Now, if you want to really get down and and, and split hairs, you know, in this sort of a discussion, the results from a whetstone will be superior to that from a, a simpler device, you know, that, that, uh, that we're talking about here. But the trade-off is uh, to get superior results on a whetstone, uh, there's a long and, uh, and sometimes steep ramp-up process. There's a lot of practice that's involved. And um, so th that's the trade-off, right? If, if you don't want to fiddle with whetstones, and all that goes into that, the, the maintenance of them and, and your own skill development and your own skill maintenance, then I think, you know, using a sharpening device uh, in the way of um, an, an electric or manual tool uh, is a great way uh, to maintain your knives. I'm a, I'm a big fan of those. Uh, they you don't, uh, don't hesitate uh, to use such a tool. All right. Thank you. All right, next question. Hello, Estella. Uh, what do you think of the salad in a jar which stays in the fridge for days? If you like it, how many days should it keep fresh in the fridge? Um, this is a, a, a good question. You know, um, I, I'll first say that I don't use that technique. Um, but, um, you know, I have certainly come across people that do and, and certainly see it a lot online. And, um, you know, I, you know, I like to use uh, prepped salad greens. Uh, it really depends on how they're dressed. And there's a lot of nuance here. But, you know, within, uh, say, three days or so, if they're, if they're not dressed, I mean, if they are dressed, uh, you know, maybe three days is a maximum, but probably less than that. Uh, in terms of use, enjoying uh, a crisper uh, salad experience. 
Now the flavor can be quite fine, even with some wilted greens, but um, you know, and, and again, maybe there's a, a technique to, to keep them, uh, you know, crisp for a longer period of time, but, but experiment, you know, again, that's that kind of my benchmark, a uh, couple of three days or so, uh, but see what you like, see what you enjoy and, um, and go from there. All right. A lot of this is personal preference, right? And, and that's also the beauty of cooking. Uh, you know, as we add a, a pinch of this and a, and a spoonful of that, um, you know, or we let something sit for one day or three days, whether it's a, a, a marination process, whether we're soaking beans or whether it's a salad in a jar, um, there's a lot of leeway, okay? And again, you know, any course, uh, of study. Any uh, website or blog is probably going to tell you one answer. Um, but please understand that there's probably more than one answer. And a lot of times there are many answers. Um, and even when it comes to, you know, issues of, of food safety and sanitation, there can be more than one answer. Uh, so please keep that in mind. Okay. But uh, do experiment and have confidence uh, in your own palate and, uh, you know, trust your senses and, you know, have some fun with the process. All right. Thank you. All right. Hello, Tara. Uh, this question is probably uh, cooking 101, uh, but what are your thoughts on rinsing boiled pasta before applying a sauce? Uh, I have heard many chefs give different opinions on rinsing versus not rinsing. Uh, yeah, this is a, a, a good question, you know, and one that we get every once in a while here as well. Um, you know, the, when it, I'll, I'll start with gluten-free pasta, okay, because gluten-free pasta is, is um, often um, sort of sticky uh, by its nature. We generally recommend rinsing it after cooking in order to uh, rinse off any residual starch on the surface that might add to the stickiness, Okay. Now, when it comes to, uh, you know, other pasta, let's say, you know, regular, right, wheat, flour, pasta, um, you know, here again, I would say personal preference. Uh, the, the bigger question for me is the, the quality of the pasta that you're using and that, um, um, you know, the, 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 the surface texture, for example, in terms of clinging uh, on, uh, onto sauces. You know, which is, uh, you know, always a uh, a, a, th a thought or a, a concern or an objective, right? When we're uh, cooking pasta, um, I, um, you know, if if I'm going to serve the pasta right away, then I don't bother rinsing it. Uh, when I do rinse pasta, is when I'm cooking it in advance, and I'm going to par cook it and I want to stop the cooking process before I store it, then I'll rinse it. That's just, that's my way forward. Okay. Um, by, by doing that, you're controlling the cooking of the pasta by getting rid of the residual heat and stopping the cooking process. Okay. So that's very important, uh, especially in a professional setting uh, where it is very common to par cook uh, pasta for later service. Okay. 
Now, the other thing to keep in mind, you know, when you're choosing a pasta and accompanying sauce is to choose, you know, a, a shape of the pasta to go with the, the consistency of the sauce. And that's where all these, um, you know, beautiful pasta shapes, these spirals and, and ridges come from, right? It's, it's really to capture the sauce. Um, and uh, so I think that's probably a, a more important issue. But yeah, again, you know, regarding, you know, your own preference, do two batches side by side and see what you like better, okay? And, and that's the sort of experimentation that, uh, that I do on a fairly regular basis at, at home. And I always uh, encourage that for my students as well. You know, do multiple batches, uh, run a taste test, take notes. And uh, what you will often find is that a particular way suits a particular situation or desired outcome. And that other way will suit a different situation. So both can be viable, but for different reasons. Right, thank you. And next question from Diane. If I'm following a salt, oil, sugar-free diet, is salt eliminated in cooking? Uh, this is a, another very fun question, okay? Fun in that it is really up to you, the cook. Um, you know, on one hand, you know, when I read or hear salt free, you know, that tells me that there is no salt, um, no added salt anyway. Uh, however, you know, it's really up to you, uh, the cook, you know, to find a balance that works for you. Now, you know, for example, if um, added salt really poses an acute health concern, then maybe that means the elimination of salt, like no added salt. Um, but if you've got some leeway in there to play with some seasoning with a low salt diet, then, uh, you know, find a place that works for you. Um, and this might be, you know, in consultation with your health provider uh, to, to find, you know, a sodium level that's going to be uh, safe uh, yet uh, will yield some tasty food. Okay, so, uh, you know, when it comes, you know, for example, to our Forks Over Knives course, uh, the Forks Over Knives course, uh, you know, fundamentally talks about the elimination of added oil uh, and, and other, you know, tr uh, potentially troublesome ingredients. But, uh, you know, most of our students are adjusting you know, decreasing oil, sugar, salt, rather than totally eliminating it. And uh, so, you know, you get to make that call, you know, based upon your uh, individual situation. All right. Thank you. All right. Next up uh, from Sarah, a question about vegetable stock. Uh, I end up, uh, when making vegetable stock, uh, adding about a quarter cup of miso and a quarter cup of bouillon gel to a reduced stock pot of water uh, to get two quarts with rich enough flavor, but I fear it's too much sodium. Is there a better way? Well, um, It, Flavor-wise, I, I think you're on the right track, and, and I, I say that because um, 
Uh, I mean, I make miso soup every morning, at least Monday through Friday, uh, for breakfast here at home. And, um, you know, the ratio that you're mentioning here, I'm not sure it's in your bouillon gel, but looking at your quarter cup of miso per two quarts, um, that's probably, um, well, it might be a, a touch more than what I use. Um, so, well, let's let's talk about this, Okay. That's why you're here. That's why I'm I'm here, right? Uh, so you know when we if we want to use miso, um, and again I don't know what's in your bouillon gel, but I'm I'm sure it's wonderful stuff, and and we'll kind of keep that you know at, at, in the back of our mind here. But um, when we talk about using miso, uh, miso is indeed relatively high in salt in sodium. So um, you know we uh, need to take that into account as far as a daily intake is concerned. And certainly if you have a, um, you know, a, a pre-existing concern around sodium consumption, then, you know, we need to really be uh, cognizant of, of the miso. So, you know, what we do in the Japanese kitchen um, when sodium intake is a concern, but miso soup is still part of your diet, uh, is to make a dashi, right, or that stock uh, that's based on other ingredients, um, um, uh, whether it's shiitake or uh, kelp or kombu, uh, could be other sea grasses. Okay, and um, and we'll make that in a, at a fairly robust flavor level, uh, so that we can add less miso and still have an enjoyable finished product. Okay, so. Um, you know, in terms of uh, your scenario here, if, if it's the salt or the sodium that's the concern, then I would say increase the other vegetable ingredients, uh, you know, in the stock recipe that you're using. And you might even add other ingredients, you know, whether it's garlic or fennel bulb or, or something else uh, that's going to add the flavor intensity and the type of flavor that you're after. Uh, and that will go well with the miso and the bouillon gel that you're adding, okay? And that way you can use uh, less of those uh, sodium-rich uh, ingredients, okay? Give that a try. Thank you. Uh, okay, okay. So I'm looking at your correction, Sarah. Thank you. Uh, regarding vegetable peels. So... You know, here, you know, you might consider just adding a little bit of uh, some whole product, um, you know, or uh, as I mentioned, other things like um, sea grasses, uh, sea vegetables. Uh, kombu uh, is going to be the classic, um, or it could be uh, some shiitake uh, or other mushroom, which will add uh, nice aroma as well as a lot of umami. And that's going to give you that satisfaction that I think you're after, okay, in that finished product. All right. Thank you. And let's see, Alfredo is asking, Alfreda, uh, excuse me, uh, do you use asafoetida in your cooking? Uh, yes, I do. Uh, in particular, when cooking beans or other legumes uh, in the Indian kitchen or otherwise the South Asian kitchen, Asafoetida is routinely added to beans in order to reduce the incidence of flatulence. 
Okay, so um, kind of like the effects of uh, epazote in the Mexican kitchen or sometimes kombu, uh, you know, in uh, the Japanese kitchen, uh, asafoetida has the effect of reducing uh, flatulence when cooking bean preparations. Um, from my own experience, I'll say that it doesn't eliminate flatulence, um, but uh, does contribute to the reduced incidence of uh, those events. And, uh, you know, otherwise, asafoetida has uh, the aroma of, you know, garlic and, and onion. And so there are people that don't use onion and garlic, but will use asafoetida to bring some of those interesting notes to their cooking. And so it, you know, can be used in many preparations, uh, potentially. Give it a try. See how you like it. Thank you. All right. Uh, next question. Uh, I made five spice powder um, as one of my FOK activities. What are some ways to use this spice mix in plant-based cooking? Aha. Uh -huh. So, um, yeah, you know, five spice um, can go well in soups and stews, uh, and as well as a part of, say, a, a marinade or a rub uh, that might uh, go on grilled items or even, you know, oven roasted items. Um, there's really a lot of different ways you can use it. Um, you know, it, it can go with starchy foods like potatoes as well as noodles, um, you know, whether in a dry preparation or a wet, you know, a soup or stew-like preparation. I think the important thing is for you to taste the uh, five-spiced blend on its own, you know, to see how you like some of those bright colors, uh, you know, star anise, for example. And then, uh, start to incorporate it, uh, you know, into a stir fry, right, or uh, a soup or a stew or a, a, a casserole. And, uh, you know, go easy uh, when you're introducing spices. Uh, start with small quantities to see, you know, how those flavors and aromas, you know, bloom or, or shift uh, with the application of heat and time, and then see how you like the finished results. And then you can always add more next time. But that's going to be, I think, uh, you know, the best way forward for you to experiment and then to learn, right, again, what your individual preferences are, as well as the audience, uh, you know, that you're cooking for. Okay. Thank you. All right. Uh, next question. Uh, I tried making a panna cotta made with cashew cream pureed strained blueberry and agar it soft set beautifully but next day it started to weep what might cause this aha uh -huh. so um the the weeping or the it's sometimes called cineresis uh is just it's very common um with foods that um are not stabilized and uh so in this case you know you've got some agar uh, and you've got the presence of the fiber from the blueberry and, and other things that you might have in this blend. And, uh, you know, that will hold it in as a temporary stabilizer. But given time, the 
the moisture will weep. And so, you know, your, your choice is to enjoy it on day one uh, or to increase the stabilizer. In this case, uh, you know, it would be the agar uh, in order to extend that shelf life in terms of the sceneresis that's occurring. Okay. Um, you know, so think about, you know, experimenting, first of all, and, and to see if you're, if you will like the texture of the additional agar. And that's really sort of where consumers lie, right, on, on their uh, acceptance or rejection of agar, period, or more agar in a given preparation. It's going to be along the lines of the texture, okay? Um, so I encourage you to uh, experiment and find a, a happy place, uh, again, for you as well as your audience. All right, thank you. Hello, Larry. Uh, see, what do you think of the, the gourmet garden or other brands that stir in paste in lieu of the real thing for hard to find ingredients, lemongrass, uh, et cetera? Aha. Um, so, yeah, I know what you're talking about. It's been a long time since I've used these products. The last one was um, from an Australian company. And it could even be what you're referring to. I'm not sure. But um, yeah, I've, I've had lemongrass and, and ginger and I think a couple of other things. And, um, you know, I think in a, uh, in a pinch, uh, you know, in a setting where it, it's truly difficult uh, to get, you know, as you say, the real thing, the, the fresh version of some of these uh, perishable um, ingredients, these uh, very aromatic, uh, flavorful ingredients, um, you know, otherwise there is a little flavor difference. And again, the best way forward is to do a side-by-side -side comparison um, so that first of all, you know what the similarities and the differences are. Uh, and then, you know, you can decide, you know, whether uh, these products will be a suitable substitute um, when the real thing is hard to find, you know, or there, maybe it gets expensive, you know, in, in your area. Um, but, uh, there's some processing involved and there's usually, um, a preservative of some sort that's added, um, to, to make them shelf stable. And sometimes they're heat treated, um, uh, and all of those things, uh, will sort of encourage that food item to shift, right? A little bit in its flavor and aroma. Um, so again, you know, how much, you know, you want to tolerate uh, is up to you. Uh, again, I think they're quite acceptable, you know, in a pinch. Um, but if, uh, you know, in season or, uh, you know, otherwise when the real thing is available, by all means, um, you know, even if um, the real thing is a little more expensive, um, you know, I would try to reach for those just to maintain uh, the, the trueness of the aroma and the flavor. All right. Thank you. All right, next question. Uh, how do you know when you can interchange flowers like chickpea, almond, oat? Uh, are there, uh, there are so many to choose from now. Also, the best way to store those packs uh, of herbs like dill, basil, etc. Okay. Well, let's start with herb storage first. Um, you know, generally herbs benefit from storage in a cool place. Okay. Now some herbs such as uh, fresh basil 
they can be sensitive to temperatures that get too cool. And, and therefore, you know, when you put them in a refrigerator that is particularly cold or a location inside the fridge that's particularly cold, they will turn black, right? They will look like they're all wilted on you, um, you know, in a short period of time. So, um, first of all, with more hardy herbs like thyme and rosemary and, and even dill, uh, you know, consider wrapping them in a damp towel, whether paper or cloth, and then storing that, you know, in a lot. Some people will store them in a, in a small plastic box with a lid that'll, you know, fit into a refrigerator. Um, they can certainly go into a, a crisper drawer, uh, but they need to be protected from the drying effect of the refrigerator. And so keep in mind that generally speaking, the refrigerator acts to extract moisture from the environment. And, and that's why uh, herbs will, will wilt very quickly and bell peppers get wrinkly, you know, after just a day or so. Uh, so if we can reintroduce some of the moisture uh, or otherwise, you know, protect the product from the dehydrating effects by uh, wrapping, in this case, the herbs uh, in a damp towel, that can extend the shelf life, okay? Um, you know, some things like cilantro, you need to be careful of because they can be pretty delicate. And if you introduce too much moisture, they will start to rot. And uh, so there's a little balance to be played there. Uh, mostly in terms of buying smaller quantities and eating it faster, in my experience. Um, basil, sometimes, uh, you know, you'll see folks that will store basil uh, upright in a little bit of water in a, in a container, um, either on the countertop, in, you know, in your kitchen, outside of the refrigerator, uh, and people have success with that. Others don't. Uh, others will store it in a container upright in a little bit of water uh, with a lid on it, uh, you know, in the refrigerator, uh, and then pluck leaves from that. Try both ways to see what might work in your situation, right, based upon your um, usage rate, as well as ambient temperature in your kitchen, you know, as well as the temperature in your refrigerator. Okay, so some experimentation, again, uh, is necessary. Now to the first part of your question regarding interchanging flowers, um, almond flour, oat flour, chickpea flour, etc. So, um, you know, some of this will depend on what you're making. Um, you know, if we're making cookies and quick breads, uh, you know, generally we can interchange flours uh, relatively easy and, you know, I recommend starting with a small amount, you know, uh, probably not more than 25% uh, of a new item so that you can see a couple of things. One, how it acts in that particular environment of baking. Okay. And uh, then number two, how you like the end results in terms of the texture and the flavor and the aroma. Okay. Um, you know, some items like chickpea flour, will have a pretty noticeable aroma and it can be a little bit uh, sticky, uh, you know, in the end, as can be oat flour, you know, for example. So um, try to bring in small amounts 
and um, experiment along the way. You know, I, well, especially when I make uh, cookies, um, I use all kinds of flowers and, you know, cookies are very forgiving, you know, especially once you have nuts and raisins and a few chocolate chips added to the mix, uh, whether it's chickpeas or oats or, or something else, they all turn out you know, quite fine, you know, for, for our, our household. Um, but I recommend experimenting again, take notes along the way so that you can customize, um, you know, what it is that you're doing for your particular setting. All right. Thank you. All right, Pamela. Uh, let's see. Pamela says, my husband used to love smoking meats in his smoker. Uh, now that we're plant-based, he has asked if there is anything plant-wise that he can smoke. Hopefully this is not misconstrued as a different kind of smoking. Uh, well, you know, I must say, Pamela, as soon as I saw plant-based and smoking, um, anyway, uh, yeah, you bet. Um, you know, you can smoke anything in your smoker, right? Whether it's uh, thick slices of tofu or full blocks of tofu uh, or root vegetables or something else. And so, um, you know, I would uh, ex uh, um, encourage right your husband to just try, uh, you know, some short smoking durations for some light flavor infusion. Uh, on on different uh, vegetables and uh, start with root vegetables that might be incorporated into a soup or a stew, right? Where that smokiness might be more, uh, you know, broadly incorporated along with other flavors, um, so that uh, you know you can you can test it out, right? Um, the last thing you want is something that is oversmoked and and then introduced to uh, a dish. Uh, which can be unpleasant, as you know, you you might be aware of. Um, but otherwise, I mean, you can smoke uh, cheese, right? You can smoke um, nuts. You can smoke chocolate. You can smoke creams uh, that might go into making a ganache. So you have a, a smoky ganache that you make. Um, uh, you know, yeah, you can apply smoke to so many different things, and um, uh, so. If anything, this just opens up a, a, a huge new world, right, for your husband, uh, for some experimenting and some fun eats uh, as well at home. Uh, I hope you'll, you know, go forth and have fun with this. Thank you. All right, next up, uh, it's like another question from Jay. Uh, in making berry coulis, blackberry or strawberry, for example, Proper technique using fine chinois in removing seeds. Uh, too much force will jam the mesh, I would think. Uh, yes. So, you know, this is um, one of uh, processing the fruit before, uh, you know, we put it through the, the, the strainer. Um, so... You know, if you're if you're simmering fruit and then and then just put it into a strainer, you're going to have a lot of chunky product at that point. In which case, uh, you might want to use a, a more coarse strainer. You know, when I hear chinois, I'm picturing a pretty fine strainer. Um, in which case, I would probably put the uh, product through a a blender first, uh, and then. I might try to push it through a, a chinois. Now, one way or another with a chinois or other fine strainer, 
the the seeds are going to end up clogging up the the bottom of that the cone, right? So you're going to start you you'll end up pushing the puree up the sides with your spatula in order to find open space to uh, to, to push it through. Um, so that's the technique. All right, uh, you you can't go down the center um, after a, a little bit because uh, it's clogged up. So you got to just use your spatula and push it up the sides, or uh, use a more coarse strainer and see how you like those results. It it all depends on how you process it. Okay, so if you if you put it in a blender, the, some of the seeds will get broken up. In which case, you want to use a finer strainer. If you don't put it through a blender, then the seeds stay whole and you can use a more coarse strainer that will grab the seeds, okay? Now you always have the option of putting it through a strainer a couple of times, all right? So you might, um, um, you know, um, put it, yeah, I mean, however you wanna figure it out, I guess. You can, you can put it, push it through, um, you know, a, a coarse strainer first, uh, and then the, the, uh, the chinois second, you know, just kind of play with that and uh, you're going to find a balance that works for you. But, uh, the two strainer method can be very successful too. All right. Thank you. All right. Question from Valentina. Hello. Uh, I live in a mountainous area and have noticed that whenever I go hiking above 2000 meters, right? So well above 6,000 feet above sea level, food tends to taste bland. How do you compensate for the reduction in taste bud sensitivity at high altitudes? Uh, do you have any tips? Uh, so the, um, the quick fix that comes to, to my mind is to more intensely flavor the food. And um, so yeah, you know, taste buds, uh, as well as the, the temperature of, of foods, right, can shift our sensitivity uh, toward um, the flavors. So in this case, we're talking about elevation. Uh, so I would take a similar uh, approach where I would recommend you experiment with uh, using more spices and other aromatic ingredients uh, that can you know, hopefully give you more satisfaction uh, in these settings where you're experiencing uh, a reduction in your taste bud sensitivity. Okay, that's what comes to mind. It sounds like a pretty fun uh, experiment. Yeah, very interesting. You know, I've had recent ex uh, conversations with um, uh, folks that, that sell food for backpackers and this topic never came up. Uh, and so the next time I'm in that situation, I will uh, bring up this topic. It's very interesting, Valentina. So um, yeah, give it some experimentation and you know, let me know how it goes. I'm curious what sort of results uh, you, know, you might experience. Right. Thank you. All right, uh, next up. Hello, Marcy. Uh, thank you for doing these events. Um, my pleasure, and I'm so uh, you know happy that you, as well as uh, you know the others uh, you know in the audience, are here today uh, to to join us for this event. Um, I run a farmers market, gluten free sourdough bakery, 
currently enrolled in pro plant course and love it. Excellent. Um, I've taught on-site baking classes, want to move some online. Any tips how uh, to plan an online course? Okay. So um, the, uh, the, the, the big thing really is to um, think about your, your sort of your limited exposure um, I mean, if, if your camera is stationary, you might have a couple of cameras, one stationary, one, one mobile, but, um, um, you know, think about what, what it is that, uh, is your limitation, right. In your, your domain, in terms of where your food is set out. Um, a lot of times we're working with a single stationary camera, in which case we need to bring things in and out, uh, in a way that is going to show detail from the appropriate angle of view. And uh, so this is where practice will be important, I think, um, in order for you to tell the story that you intend to tell. Um, it's you know, fairly common when I see online courses um, uh, or on, you know, just videos in general of, of cooking where a person is trying to show a particular aspect of food um, but because of the angle, uh, the viewer is unable to really appreciate what it is that the, the cook or the baker is seeing live. Uh, and then another part of this is also to uh, play with the, the clarity uh, or the focus of your camera, right? We're very often we're trying to show off something detailed um, that uh, um, things get blurry. Okay, so do you keep those sort of technical uh, basics in mind? Uh, and then also, if you've got a, a set uh, time that you're working with, then uh, you know you might write out a script, uh, and then you know also practice with what sort of props uh, that you might need, whether they're tools or whether they're pre-made items, you know, to a a midpoint, right, to show what cooking in process might look like, uh, and so prepare, you know, those sorts of props. Um, you know, in a way that will follow the script um, that will fit within the time frame uh, that you're designing so that your courses will, you know, be of a, of a consistent length of time. I think that's nice that if you can do that. Okay. Um, so, uh, and yeah, and, and then, you know, otherwise, you know, as you're discussing a food item, you know, keep in mind that the viewer has limited access to what you're talking about, whether it's the view, you know, the color, texture, size, you know, these sorts of things that we see, uh, as well as the aroma or the taste uh, that you might be experiencing in front of the camera. And so we want to do the best we can to um, bring those things into view or otherwise explain those things that are that might be out of view um, sufficiently, okay, so that the uh, that the viewer can really appreciate what it is that you're experiencing, okay. I hope you'll keep those those few things in mind. Thank you. And um, P.S. Okay, from Marcy, uh, G.F. Gluten free, and the on-site classes I teach are for gluten-free sourdough breads. Uh, looking forward to adding more whole food, plant-based material to my classes. 
Um, yeah, awesome. I, I think that, uh, you know, to be offering sourdough breads in the realm of the gluten-free world is awesome. Um, is more and more demand for this sort of thing. And, you know, as you talk about introducing more whole food ingredients, I think that's so important. Um, and not only in your world of baking, but also for all of us, uh, for cooking in general, um, you know, when we look at a, uh, a plant-based world, right, of eating, uh, there are so many processed foods available to us, whether they're snack foods or convenience foods, um, you know, or some, some other aspect of uh, the grocery shopping experience. Um, keep in mind, right, that very often what we were moving away from in the broader um, sort of uh, world of food when, uh, you know, before we came to the plant-based world was processed foods. And if we adopt plant-based, you know, I'll say vegan, right, processed foods, we're not doing ourselves any favors, right, from a, a health perspective. And so if, if health is your uh, motivational point, then we really need to be thinking about uh, whole foods. And um, keep in mind also that if we really want to adopt a whole food, uh, plant-based sort of a lifestyle, there is inconvenience involved, okay? Uh, because as we move away from processed foods, which equal convenience foods, we move toward inconvenience, uh, which means that we need to structure our week and our day more strategically so that we can prepare foods in advance, you know, through the principles of batch cooking, uh, which is really, you know, a core lesson in all of our uh, courses, in order to bring efficiency uh, to your operation. And uh, along the way comes skill development. And a key skill to develop will be your knife skills. And uh, it takes time. So please be patient. Uh, with yourself uh, so that uh, you can learn to prepare foods uh, more quickly, um, you know, more efficiently through your higher level of skill that you've developed, um, you know, conscientiously over time. And uh, it's only when all of those things start to converge uh, that we get the best results uh, that we can, uh, you know, in this world of, uh, of cooking uh, with whole foods. Um, but I hope all of you will, will give that uh, your best effort, okay? Uh, and then the next question up uh, says, I was wondering if Ruby will be having cheese making as a course in the future. Um, Stella, that's a, a great suggestion, and uh, it is duly noted. Uh, and I will, you know, take this uh, you know, to our team for discussion. Uh, you know, we are always uh, looking ahead uh, to course development. And uh, certainly part of what drives our decision-making process is you, right? And your demand. And um, uh, let's see uh, if cheese will be one of those things, right? Thanks for your suggestion. And uh, next, next up, uh, this is from Sarah. Uh, thank you so much for your good counsel. 
always. I'm uh, becoming a, a better, a much better cook because of these sessions. Uh, you know, excellent. Um, you know, it really is you know, my pleasure to uh, share you know, my experience. And, and uh, you know, I will be the first to, to say that my experience is just one wedge, right? One piece of the, the larger world of cooking. So I hope that, uh, you know, you will take uh, suggestions and, and ideas uh, from other Ruby instructors uh, as well as cooks and chefs from the rest of the world, right, that you might encounter. Uh, I certainly do, uh, you know, as I attend uh, cooking classes and uh, talk to uh, not only professional chefs, but also home cooks uh, to further and, you know, deepen and broaden my knowledge of food. And, um, you know, I, I hope that you will do the same. All right. And uh, this brings us to the end of our session today. I want to thank each one of you for joining my uh, office hours and uh, today's Ruby live event. And I look forward to seeing you again next time. Until then, happy cooking. <laughs>